should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, December 14th. Is yep. it the 14th? Uh, 13th. It's the 13th. Ugh. It just feels like the, the year has... <laughs> You're so eager for it to be over. I'm eager for it to be over, I guess, kind of, sort of, but the, the, this, at the same time, I can't believe we're even here uh, the last month of the year. I didn't even think that we would make it. I didn't think that <laughs> humanity would make it. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. It's Tuesday, and so our favorite guy in the whole entire world is here with us, John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. Thanks so much for joining us, John. Oh, wow. I was thinking it was going to be William Shatner or something there for a moment. <laughs> no, you know, yeah, no. Um. Anyway, so the world, or I should say not the world, America. There America. I go again. There I go again with my American arrogance. We are the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a yes, it's a very interesting time here in the America. <laughs> the America. The America. The Americas. Because we think that we could... uh just kind of take over any anything anywhere we want to. But uh, it's been a while, you know, and, and last week I wasn't able to produce. I was actually hosting a traveling group of high school students. And so what that means is they're part of a program called Think Global. And uh, it's this high school. I suspect that, you know, your parents have to have some, you know, cash to be able to fund this. But um, you travel to different countries to give yourself, you know, cultural experiences for what you're learning. So it's part of the curriculum. And so yeah. they were here in San Francisco to learn about, you know, the LGBTQ community, the culture, and also its history. And um, I was very, very, I felt very honored to be chosen by them to be a part of their curriculum because, I mean, you know, I'm full of uh, fallacies and... Uh, <laughs> Wrong information. No, I'm just kidding. I did put together a great program. <laughs> good for thing them. to say at the beginning of the radio. Yeah, program I know. Too. No, I did put together a great program for them. We had some speakers come into the studio. We mm -hmm. taped it for the television show. Mm -hmm. um, then we interviewed the kids back for you know kind of like what they learned. Uh, so I was very interested to hear what they what they learned while they were here. Uh, they didn't know who Cleve Jones was. They didn't know who Harvey Milk was. And some of these students, you know, live right here in the United States, such as Maryland and New York. The third uh, world, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and uh, some of them, you know, were absolutely intrigued by, by just kind of, you know, our views, our perception of identity as it applies to sexual orientation and gender and how the spectrum is very diverse. It's vast, actually, and, and not all of us need to fit in that box. One of the things that did come up was racism, mm -hmm. and uh, and one student, you know, who was from 
I believe he was from the Czech Republic, uh, had said that, you know, he noticed there were many white men in the Castro. Yep. He noticed that, you know, in his mind, the views of what looks like a an LGBTQ identified person or a trans person seemed to be on the streets. So he asked me about that, like, you know, the homelessness. And he said, I did some reading and we were supposed to meet, you know, your guy, uh, our new newly elected state senator, Scott Wiener, and said, how, how is it possible for a gay senator or a gay politician to sit in these positions, but yet disregard, you know, the experiences of LGBTQ people? How, do, how does he let it get this way? And, you know, I tried, I was very careful with that statement and said, it's important to know that it doesn't take one person to create all the problems that we face. <laughs> so I gave Scott Wiener you know, some, um, an, an, an opening for that. But um, my suspicions are, I, I think where he was getting at was how is it that, you know, we had Harvey Milk who uh, is deemed, you know, a hero in the gay community, but yet, and then now we have so many gay politicians who are out, but they are not as heroic as Harvey Milk. What do you think? Um, what specifically was Harvey Milk doing back then, and what would he be doing if he were in office today? I mean, what heroism are you looking for? I mean, I can answer that where I think that what the kids got is this impression that he really gave liberation to the gay community here in San Francisco. Uh, but I think you are right in that you know he was working on the same type of bills that maybe some that might come through um, the state or any other state or in this country, really. Like, for example, you know, the Briggs Initiative, that was supposed to be a ban on uh, out gay teachers in the school system. Well, you know. Well, and, and today, yeah, you'd have the governor and the attorney general of the state fighting it tooth and nail, right. along with a mayor and probably a unanimous board of supervisors in San Francisco and at Los Angeles. And, you know, um, it, it's a different world. And, and, it, and it actually, I think, highlights the achievement of someone like Harvey Milk that he went up against. It at a time when you did not have all of these major figures in the state who right. you knew would back you up and would go to the mat for you. Right. I think what it came down to is I was very careful to talk about two things that I thought were equally correlated to each other, which is, you know, social socioeconomic issues or economic inequalities and racism. Um, we have not been able to deal with those two issues as it impacts the LGBTQ community because it's been very hard to define those issues as just LGBTQ issues because they're not, you know, they, they affect all of our communities. Uh, and uh, I was also busy with uh, Orlando Pulse survivors. So we had some Orlando Pulse survivors here in San Francisco um, in which actually I have a disappointing story. And so I'll save that for later on in the show. So it's something to look forward to a disappointment. Yeah, there was a sad was, story or it, it was a real disappointment. Oh. I'm sorry. It was a real disappointment in my observation of how a tragedy that affects our community that is considered one of the deadliest massacres yeah. in American history has now been treated as an opportunity as a as an economic opportunity. Or, yeah, so I'll explain later on. You'll just okay. have to stick around for that. Let's get, uh, bleh. Let's get today's <laughs> show started. I'm going to have to delete that. Um, 
Let's get today's show started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Today's show, the first half, will focus on John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. He hosts his own show called the week-to-week political roundtable talk that airs here on Fridays at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. And so we'll check in with John on the political environment of America, what has happened since our last discussion, and I feel there have been some appointments and also um, some some new activity to try to turn the tide around come December 19th as far as the Electoral College. So we'll discuss that a little bit. And then in the second half, we'll talk to a social justice activist, Urvashi Vaid, uh, who is very well known in our community, the LGBTQ community. And so we'll get her thoughts on the social activism, the social justice activism that we're focused on today after uh, President-elect Donald Trump's victory win over Hillary Clinton. Victory win. Anyway, John, where do we start? Do we want to start with the recent appointments that is all just a mess or do we want to you want to briefly talk about? The electoral uh, college. Why, and, why and, don't we? If you, uh, sorry to interrupt. No, okay. um, why don't we start with our good friends in Russia, because great point. That's the only thing that makes the electoral college this Friday particularly interesting. So on on Friday, this past Friday, uh, the the news came out that President Obama had ordered a review, an investigation into reports of hacking. So what we've got now are seventeen U.S. intelligence agencies that all say Russia hacked hacked, even interfered with the U.S. election. Uh, there's, I, I guess they all agree, except for the FBI, that it was done specifically to help Donald Trump. The FBI's interpretation, I think, is more just that they were just trying to sow confusion. Everyone else says this was a pro-Trump thing. Now, I don't, I don't expect you to have all the answers. Oh, I do. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what are the consequences, if there are any, um, in terms of this investigation as far as the election results. So if that were to happen, do we need to do a recount? Or, I mean, what do you think? There's no, I, there's no, I don't. Hmm. Yeah, like what happens? Yeah, I don't think it's like, oh, there was shown to be interference by another country. Therefore, there's an automatic redo. Um, what is going on, and this is why I brought this up when we're talking about the Electoral College, is the Clinton campaign uh which has actually been kind of mute on things such as the recounts and things like that. You know, they they participated in them, but that's more kind of pro forma to make sure their interests are, are followed. But um, they don't think the recounts are going to do anything, and they're not because, you know, Wisconsin's almost done. Pennsylvania and Michigan, I guess, have both were canceled by judges. Um, however, the Clinton administration has said what they want is for the electors to see the uh, study or the, the investigation results before they vote. Mm. So now uh, there's all there. Every time you get a bunch of say non-Trump voters, I was going to say Democrats, but lots of Republicans too. non-Trump voters in a room and they're talking about the presidential election. There's always going to be quite a few folks saying, Oh, but can the electoral college save us? And the answer is it's, you know, it's within the realm of possibility. It's not going to happen. Do you know if this would be the first time in American history that if it happens, if the Electoral College decided to, you know, cast their vote a different way, would it be the first time in American history that uh, we went with the other candidate? I believe so. Wow. Now, it has it has 
in the past been thrown into so if neither candidate gets the 270 electoral votes when the electoral college gets together then it goes to the house of representatives which is not going to make hillary clinton president right um because it's controlled by republicans who do not like hillary clinton um so what would have to happen is you would have to have enough folks who would be so upset by this that they would vote to, and they would have to vote for Hillary Clinton, frankly. There have been efforts of like, oh, what they should do is support like a John Kasich, even Democrats saying this, because the point is to stop Trump, and if they throw it into the House, maybe they will vote for Kasich. I suspect that's a little too convoluted to... Yeah. 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 Um, and I think too many people in the Congress by this point are, are have made their peace with Trump and the Republican side. So anyway, what what is certainly going to happen is this entire week, this story is going to be very live. Now, what do I expect to happen? I expect that Donald Trump will take the oath of office on January 20th or 21st or whatever. You do? Yeah. I, they're they're going to fight this tooth and nail, you know. And the getting electors to change their votes, getting Republican electors from states. Remember, they're, they're not just like normal people who sign up to become an elector. They're picked by the party and the candidates. So... You know, it would have to be so um, outrageous, whatever the information has shown. Basically, I think you would have to show actual collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians, not just that the Russians were interfering and, and, and maybe even did indeed succeed in making him president, but you, for someone to change their vote, again, these are people who really don't want Hillary Clinton to be president. Um, I think it would have to really be damning, and I, I don't think that info was out there because if it was, I think we would have seen that. So aside from, you know, the potential involvement of Russia as far as like hacking or, mm-hmm. um, you know, having some impact on our election, Donald Trump's, I can't even say, you know, president elect, president elect Donald Trump's appointments have also been extremely scary, even for conservatives and Republicans. And I would think for a lot of his voters. Yes. On two fronts, I think mainly one for his voters. uh, Of course, he brought in a lot of folks from wall street, you know, and he ran against wall street. Remember Hillary Clinton was the evil candidate who is, you know, in bed with Goldman Sachs and she's giving them private speeches and et cetera. Um, and then the next thing you know, he's basically turning the economy over to Goldman Sachs. Um, and other things that he's doing uh, uh, that, that will also affect some of his, his uh, supporters, I think, is um, the Russia thing. Again, here, so say the Russia story doesn't obviously likely lead to anything other than painting his, his, his presidency. As far as you know, it's not going to get them un, uh, with pulled out of the system. Um, on the other hand, you have a lot of Republicans who, for a long time, have made Russia enemy number one. So even Mitch McConnell, who helped bury this whole thing back in October, I believe it was, when he was first presented with this information by the Obama administration, he said, "If you guys go public with this, I'm going to politicize it. I'm going to make it a you know a political bomb. You won't be able to." You get it out there, everyone will just assume you're, you're playing politics, President Obama. Even he now is calling for, uh, you know, he's saying he's supporting the Senate investigating this thing. So I think you've got um, 
a lot of stuff that that heading into it is going to create unease with with large parts of the Republican folks. Other things, though, he's he's backed up his support by bringing in these you know super Wall Street business people. He's of course built new ties to uh, the, if you will, the traditional Wall Street Republicans. It's so shady. It's so shady. Yeah. Uh, well, there's more to that, but we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club, who is the host of his own show, and it's the week-to-week political roundtable talk that airs here on the Michelle Miao Show, Fridays at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. So don't go away. Just a quick break. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Tuesday, December 13th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And so I thought it was important to check in with him about what's happening in this country politically. It just sounds like a mess. I stopped reading the news, stopped tuning in and checking in because obviously it's really depressing and it's scary, actually, for normal citizens. And I should say standard citizens like myself who aren't necessarily political analysts or commentators or scholars, you know, and who are just trying to live their everyday life um, to to be on this uh, what feels like a ticking time bomb waiting for President-elect Donald Trump to to make his move. He's made some moves. He's made some appointments that obviously go against everything that he had said during his campaign. And, you know, what my fear is, is that these people seem to be uh, appointed to positions that they do not have experience in, which is interesting because we, or I shouldn't say we, but some people here in this country hate Hillary Clinton so much, but yet she's the most qualified person ever to sit on any of these positions that uh, she has. And even when you look at President Obama's administration, 
he seemed to have put some thought behind some of these people who, you know, have these positions. And so let's continue our discussion about the appointments. Uh, what's the most ridiculous? I think Ben Carson, who's now heads the um, the housing uh, department. Yeah, he's, he's someone who was, frankly, unqualified to be president and who said himself that he wasn't qualified to be in the cabinet. Uh, and then he is now going to be in the cabinet. So he's going to be leading the secretary. He's going to be, assuming he's confirmed, the secretary of housing and urban development. Um, then there's Rick Perry. Rick Perry, former two-time governor <laughs> of uh, Texas and uh, uh, the man who, who thinks gays can be cured, um, is going to be the secretary of energy, which is a department he called for disbanding when he was running for president. So... Um, there, there, now, there are some folks who I think uh, people would agree, even if they disagree with them politically, they're at least qualified to, to hold such a position and might even make you feel a little bit better. And that is, uh, you know, Nikki Haley, South Carolina's governor, uh, a Trump opponent during the campaign, um, and in fact, uh, you know, a critic of these bathroom bills that were, so that I guess still are popular in some places. Um, she's going to be the secretary or excuse me, the ambassador to the United Nations. So he's shipped her off there where she can't do any harm or any good. Uh, Secretary of Transportation is going to be, again, assuming approval, Elaine Chow. She was the first Asian-American cabinet member, I think under George Herbert, no, excuse me, under George W. Bush. She was a deputy secretary of transportation under George Herbert Walker Bush. So actually someone who genuinely has has, uh, some uh, experience um, the experience that uh, he might most be interested in having in his Secretary of Transportation, though, is really that she is married to Mitch McConnell. So, um, but nonetheless, qualified. <laughs> you, you could not argue she's not qualified. <laughs> Here, here's something that I know is bothering folks. And this, in fact, I, I know uh, upsets my boss at the Commonwealth Club. She has served in the Defense Department, and she worked on uh, disarmament when, when she was in the Clinton administration. And that is the number of generals or former generals who are have been appointed or to or nominated for these positions in defense, uh, uh, several other positions. And there's a rule that you cannot have a secretary of defense who has uh, been in the an active military member, uh, I think, for seven years. And the man who has been chosen is uh, Marine General former. Uh, James Mattis, and he was he left four years ago. Now he's very highly respected. He's very much a hawk, but he's very highly respected. Um, and in fact, he was at the Hoover administration, just down the peninsula from us here in San Francisco. And the Hoover administ- institution was is a conservative institution, uh, which had which kind of was one of the hotbeds of the anti-Trump movement. So. Um, Mattis qualified for the position, but very controversial because of the whole issue of people concerned about civilian control of the Pentagon, mm-hmm. that it be controlled by civilians, that the generals, in other words, answer to civilians, and they don't answer to other generals. Um, and then, uh, I guess, another controversial position, Senator Jeff Sessions from Alabama as Attorney General. Right. That, I know, uh, has people excited. Um, so it, it's a mixed bag. <laughs> uh, I just, uh, yeah, you know what? A mixed bag of like scandal. Well, deplorables and scan and scandalous. Um, I guess uh, picks because it all seems like everyone's in bed with everyone, 
uh, well, in and, a lot of I, ways. And I think I saw something yesterday where several of them have been have been accused of domestic violence. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk to you about something. You know, uh, President like Donald Trump. Had, hey, you're you're getting better at that. You know, <laughs> I just say if I say it really fast and it sounds like Jello, then I can accept it for myself. <laughs> but um, you know, I talked a whole lot about ISIS, about, you know, the issues that we have, our foreign issues that we have in, in the Middle East and terrorism. And he picked on Hillary Clinton uh, for, you know, taking money from some of these bad countries, if you will. And even when he was asked about what will he do, and he was asked several times specifically, what will you do to defeat ISIS? You know, he didn't really have a plan. He just kept saying that he will defeat ISIS. He will. He's just going to do it. And so um, the most recent pick, Rex Tillerson for secretary of state. I mean, this is the person that he uh, Rex Tillerson will be the guy to deal with ISIS. And so I'm trying to figure out how an Exxon Mobil executive is going to defeat ISIS, according to Donald Trump. Well, I mean, so Rex Tillerson is the CEO of Exxon Mobil. And uh, he's been selected. He was nominated, officially announced this morning, I guess, uh, as Secretary of State. The Secretary of State really isn't the one who's going to defeat ISIS. I mean, that actually we are defeating ISIS. I mean, when they talk about the the advances that have been made and and uh, the cities taken back and the number of ISIS folks who have been killed bluntly, um, and the you know even good news, they're getting far fewer recruits to ISIS this over this past year and stuff like that. So, what's probably going to happen is during the Trump administration, uh, we're going to see, you know, ISIS effectively destroyed and Trump will take credit for something that really Barack Obama did. Right. Um, I, I think, I mean, here's, here's actually for this show, here's a good thing to talk or a good topic to talk about. And that is, so Rex Tillerson as secretary of state, do we know anything about his attitudes toward LGBT issues? Now, under Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, the, the State Department became a vocal defender of LGBTQ folks around the world. And not a perfect record, but I mean, they spoke out against uh, you know, discrimination. They, they tried to protect folks. They uh, raised the issue of it. And they spoke, she spoke publicly about it. She kind of re, reiterated her famous, you know, women's issues are hu- women's rights are human rights. And she said LGBT rights are, are human rights. Um, I don't think there's any chance that that is going to continue under Rex Tillerson unless he happened to be a, a, an, a, an unusually um, enlightened ExxonMobil CEO. That's just my thing is like I'm trying to make this connection how the CEO of a large you know, oil company um, would be a great pick. I, I, I can't say why I think he'd be a big pick because I'm, you know, he isn't my choice for a pick, but... I could say I think how Donald Trump would think he's a good choice for it. And that is, he's a business person, both of them are, and Donald Trump thinks he needs a deal maker, someone who can go and negotiate and, and such with foreign people. And that's what, of course, Mr. Tillerson has done, you know, famously with Russia, which has praised the Tillerson choice. Um, but why aren't we you know, calling out the obvious, which is, the special interests that Mr. Tillerson, you know, probably has. And I just don't see how, forgive me for this, you know, but I I just don't see how when you're that powerful and seeing how, you know, oil is 
incredibly it's uh, it, it's a it's a natural resource that have caused wars uh, and has uh, strained many relationships. It's like this power play, and I don't see how that person can stay neutral or unbiased or not proceed and abuse his power in, in, in making sure that he's taken care of. Yeah, we haven't brought up the uh, conflicts of interest yet today. <laughs> That's what I'm trying have, to get. But, but others the have. Conflicts of interest. Uh, others have, and they're making it a, a, a key thing. There are groups that um, are planning on highlighting this and, and you know raising it, obviously, during the, the nomination confirmation hearings. But I, okay, of all the folks, and we've just gone through eight years, very nearly, we're in the last days of the Obama administration, but we've gone through eight years without all that kind of drama and indictments and, and uh, uh, you know, imprisonment of any cabinet members, right? It's been remarkably smooth. And because Obama definitely chose people he knew would be capable, but also ran them through the ringer of making sure they weren't going to be, uh, you know, in cahoots with the wrong people. I can't imagine that, say, Trump serves the full four, ter- four years of his, his first term. Um, I can't imagine that the people he's chosen are going to get by without indictments and convictions. (laughs) Oh my gosh, this is going to be a very active four years if he makes it through the four years. But I say active because all of the watchdogs, all of the, you know, uh, I think the media is going to be extremely busy. Um, So I guess in some ways I have President-elect Donald Trump to thank for being able to stay in the mix. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this show is is more valid now than, not va- not valid, but more important now and, and has a mission that's even more important now than it has for a while. It's because, you know, certain things that, that seem to be all moving in the right direction are now going to be fought from the, the government and, and so... Stay tuned to this program. Well, thank you so much, John, and thank you for your contribution and being our political whiz here on the program and uh, having these discussions with us. Make sure you tune into John's show that comes up every Friday at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time here on Progressive Voices Network during the Michelle Miao Show. Don't go away. We're going to go to a quick break, but when we come back, we'll speak to social justice activist Urvashi Vaid. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marta Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org. Download our free app in iTunes. And join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. 
think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Tuesday, December 13th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. Thank you so much, John, for walking us through what I consider a tragedy. <laughs> That's uh, or no, what you know, what no, it's it's a tragedy, but it's also just a hot mess. I think I think that I don't. It just doesn't feel like there's purpose going on in terms of the transition into a new administration. I think that our president-elect is floundering and just kind of trying to make things work without actually having all the information and or knowledge to make these types of decisions. And, and there are certainly lots of folks who believe that, A, he never himself expected to be president, never wanted to really be president, and then in it was as shocked as all the Democrats were that he became the president-elect. So that, yes, it's improvisation um, at the top level. Well, let's uh, get our second half of the show started. So uh, obviously here in America, we're just so deeply concerned with what's going on in our country. Sometimes, you know, it's it's good to pull out and have these bigger discussions of, you know, what the what next is. Everybody's talking about what should I be doing? Um, what, how can I get involved? And and I think the beauty the the beauty of it all is that it doesn't necessarily only have to apply to you know, get Trump out of office. I mean, everything else that we've been working on to make sure that everybody's treated equally, not just here in America, but around the world. I mean, those types of work need to continue. And so I'm excited for our next guest, uh, who works with social justice innovators, movements and organizations to address structural inequalities based on sexual orientation, gender identity, race, gender and economic uh, status. And so um, uh, I've been dying to talk to this person for actually a really long time. Let's welcome Irvishi Vaid to the program. Irvishi, thank you so much for joining us here today. It would be good to make sure that your mic is on. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, I can hear you. I can hear you perfectly. Can you hear me? We can hear you now. I'm producing the show, you know, doing all the <laughs> buttons and also hosting. Sometimes that happens when. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I am here and I heard you and I said, thank you, Michelle. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. You know, let's uh, get you acquainted with just kind of what our conversation has been. I mean, I think mm -hmm. that, um, I think that actually, you know, with the whole election, that has, that has, we're, 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 we're like losing focus, I feel like. If you're a social justice activist, you might, I feel like you're, we're losing focus here on the work that we have been doing, and now we're all 
focused on either a trying to get Trump out of office, um, even though he hasn't even been <laughs> inaugurated, but also you know trying to address the you know whether it's white supremacy that people are now thinking that oh my goodness I'm 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 realizing that the country is actually racist when it has always been racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are your thoughts on my statement sure. of of saying that you know for social activists you've been doing this work for for a really long time this election may have caused us to lose our focus. I think, you know, there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. I feel like nobody expected this on the progressive side, and it felt like a body blow, and people have been adjusting. So there was a lot of just, uh, among the communities that I move in, a lot of uh, surprise and shock, and then numbness, and and then anger, and and organizing, but I think the point you make is that, in fact, the work that many of us have been doing all along has become even more important. And indeed, this moment is going to mean that many more people who haven't been part of social movements or have been a little bit on in their you know on their couches um, are going to get out in the street and get involved as volunteers in a much more active way. So I think we're going to actually see the growth of a lot of organizing. But I think the other point that you alluded to, which is that, you know, many of us have been talking about the um, uh, pervasiveness of uh, sort of racism, structural racism, the uh, economic inequalities in this country. This is not a new story, although the liberal media and the conservative media seem to want to make it like it's a brand new story, as if we never knew that the white working class was getting stiffed. Um, you know, I mean, it's just a crock. And I think there are a couple of um, dangerous tendencies in this moment that I'm seeing from, particularly from the mainstream, that we in the progressive organizing world should not buy into. Um, and uh, one of those is the narrative that is being promoted that somehow pits um, white working class people against so-called identity movements. I mean, one could look at the Trump election as a triumph of identity politics. It's white identity politics that he manipulated and used in a very divisive, deliberate way. The use of immigration policy as a wedge, the use of uh, white nationalism as a wedge, the kind of attacks on President Obama that he's been waging for years. Um, These are all examples of exploiting the racism that is present in this country for his purposes. And I, I think we have to call it out. I don't believe that the uh, progressive movement or those of us who have been working for social justice have ignored wealth inequality. In fact, we've been talking about it. I mean, you know, from the Seattle protests at the WTO in the early 90s, you can take it back to the Jesse Jackson campaign. Jesse was talking about the fact that the white working class was getting stiffed by globalization in in his runs in 84 and 88. Um, There's been an, an extensive... Uh, amount of work going on about trying to undo corporate power, trying to come up with creative strategies like minimum wage and raising the minimum wage or paid sick leave or, you know, uh, community benefit agreements that force companies uh, to give community benefits for big projects. I mean, there's a million interventions that have been attempted on the economic justice side. The fundamental fundamental problem is that um, jobs have been exported 
overseas by big corporations, and that project is not going to be reversed, in my opinion. So, so let me just pause there for a minute. So if if there's the this dire economic need among lots of folks in this country, um, and he, do you think he tapped into it with those, uh, you know, the racial, the white identity stuff? In other words, what was more important, do you think, in getting him into the to become president-elect? Was it him playing to those economic fears and talking about, you know, bringing jobs back and such? Or was it the, uh, the racial and, and, and uh, uh, ethnic stuff that he was doing on... on um, could, I, could I answer both? Sure, um, I think that, that actually it, it was a very good exploitation of both. Um, I think there are... Uh, I mean... But the other piece of the picture here is that Trump benefited from and his victory was built on a very systematic, carefully engineered Republican right-wing infrastructure that has been being built over the last 30 to 40 years. That's right. And so this victory is not just a victory of this one person who happened to find the right message. It's the victory of the grassroots Tea Party movement, um, which has been building and taking over uh, Republican parties across the country, pretty much, you know, uh, even before the current incarnation of this movement as the Tea Party. I mean, it really started post-Robertson with Ralph Reed's systematic efforts to take over and move the Republican Party to the right in the early 90s. And they have done an amazing job of grassroots organizing um, in the conservative side. Um, they have trained thousands of grassroots activists. They have engaged people, ordinary people, in getting involved in politics. And you look at the map of state legislatures in this country, it is the most Republican since 1928. You go to the Republican Legislative Campaign Committee's website and you can find maps, you know, which talk about they're the part of the RNC that focuses on state legislatures. And you've got super majorities in like, what, over 36 states? And I mean, they're a couple of states away from having a, a, a majority of state legislatures that could pass constitutional amendments. And I don't think that's good for this country because it is a very hard right wing that is in power. It is a very um, exclusionary politics. We're right, you're wrong. Our religion over everybody else's. White supremacy is okay by me. Corporations, you know, under the guise of rhetoric that everybody can aspire to, freedom, liberty, you know, lower taxes. Who doesn't want that? Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but underneath that kind of uh, apple pie uh, trimming, is a deeply divisive and dystopic vision of this country's future. It is a vision that says some people are going to have a lot and some people are disposable. And, you know, progressives reject that. We absolutely reject that vision. We're not dystopic. We're problematically utopic, right? <laughs> well, well let, let, me, let me play right on that then. Because when you're talking about, you know, the, the grassroots, the, the progressives mm -hmm. out there doing things every single day, um, it's often the case where, like, you know, George W. Bush becomes president, but, you know, there's lots of stuff that's going to be going on in the states and, and local levels. You just talked about, and, and I've seen yeah. that, that elsewhere, so, so many of the states are controlled solidly, not just by Republicans, but by quite extreme Republicans in many cases. So um, where, well, take, yeah. for people who are interested in, in these issues mm -hmm. and, and supporting them, 
where is it going to happen? Or are they just going to have to wait for um, the Republicans to drive us into the ground like they did in 1928? <laughs> no, they're not going to have to wait. Um, I think what's interesting for progressives is to think about the fact that, on the one hand, we have really had a flourishing of social movements. You know, there are really amazing leaders and young people-led and as an old person, I'll say this, old people-led social movements and movement organizations. You have a vibrant LGBT movement that has been that I've been working in for the last 40 years that has emerged. You have a movement around uh, police reform and police practices reform and police violence that has been emerging. You have a vibrant criminal justice reform movement that actually has massive public support and bipartisan support. You have an immigrant rights movement that has emerged that's unbelievable and effective. There's a workers' rights movement. Even as unions are going downhill, you have unions and grassroots organizers working in creative ways to pass, like I said, minimum wage laws and, and other solutions that can help working families. And you know, and and so there's lots of things you can point. There's a climate change and and environmental movement against the, the problem for our side mm -hmm. is none of these movements is politically connected, and we don't have a Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is weak, ineffective across the board. There are outstanding Democrat leaders, generally at the local level. You might find a great city councilor, a mayor, a state rep, even a governor here and there. Um, and of course, you have some national uh, people who are wonderful. The problem is there's no there there. There's no infrastructure. I live in New York, and the New York State Democratic Party is a bunch of patronage drones. You know, it's a jobs program for people in the Democratic Party, and it's not like a place where activists like me have plugged in, nor do they make it easy for people like us to plug in for the ordinary person. You try to go and find information about how to be a precinct officer, how to run for your precinct, how to plug into a democratic infrastructure in a state like New York, you find nothing online. If I wanted to sign up as a Republican, I could find tons of materials that would help me, train me, empower me, get me involved in my party. Mm. That's real clear difference. I have, a, I, have a, I have a great question for you, but we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we will continue our conversation with Rishi Vayid. So don't go away. We'll be right back. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say, I do especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care. 
serving your community. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me here on the program. It's December 13th on a Tuesday. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And our special guest on the phone enlightening us about some of the issues that we might have even on our side and what's happening here in this country um, as it applies to, yes, the results of the election, yada, yada, yada. That's all we can talk about <laughs> is uh, Urvashi Vaid, who also is an attorney, by the way, but a brilliant organizer um, and leader in the LGBTQ community and social justice movements. Urvashi, right before the break, you made a great point in kind of, you know, pointing out um, the disorganization of the Democratic Party. Uh, mm -hmm. And not just the disorganization, but just kind of also some real issues that the party um, is facing. And we saw that play out during the election, but even during Hillary Clinton's campaign. I want to throw out, you know, some names like Senator Bernie Sanders, you know, who mm -hmm. have been pointing this out for a long time, actually being, uh, um, I don't want to say victim, but somebody completely impacted by the Democratic Party. Um you know, throughout his campaign as well and has been critical. You mentioned there are some incredible leaders. Well, do we have leaders then that can jump in and and jumpstart some life into the Democratic Party? As some of us, especially I feel like younger progressives, feel like this needs to happen like right now. I hope that younger activists will not turn away from politics, but turn into political activism and literally get involved at the local level and start the transformation that needs to happen. You need a 50-state grassroots movement to turn it around, and it's totally doable. And, you know, I think that's uh, what I hope people will turn some of their energies towards politics to, to try to figure out, okay, how do I get involved? I mean, Bernie's success in part was in in taking those caucus processes and inspiring enough people to participate in them that they could make a difference. That's why he won all those caucus states. He didn't win the states where people voted in the primary, by and large, right? The, the thing you brought up, Bernie, I mean, you know, he wasn't a Democrat. <laughs> he hasn't been involved in the Democratic Party. Right. He hasn't been involved. He's been an independent for 25 years. So to run as a Democratic Party candidate and then criticize a party when you haven't done anything to actually engage it, transform it, push it before this election, I don't know, you know? Uh, great. I mean, I share the critique, too, but I want to get in there and do something about it. Um, so I'd like to see what, what that organization is going to do, how it might, you know, be involved in training and transforming. Um, uh, the energy that supported Bernie into a more longer-term, sustained effort 
uh, at the state level, at the local level. Because, you know, when you literally look at the map of the majority of the country being in the hands of not just, I mean, it's not just about Republicans versus Democrats. It's about values. It's a value system that is really in in opposition to uh, conservative values versus progressive values. And there's a real difference. And so, you know, um, I, I take a lot of hope in the, the huge amount of discussion and energy and activism that's springing up all over the country. We, it will, we need to sustain it. Um, and I would encourage people to do several things. First, we're going to have to defend and we're going to have to try to protect some of the victories that civil rights movements and social justice movements have won. Um, specifically, we're going to have to try to defend uh, women's right to choose, which will be completely on the chopping block one of the first things they're going to move on. We're going to have to try to defend the ability for people to get health care. Um, you know, everybody wants the American, uh, the ACA uh, Affordable Care Act to stay in principle. The majority of people want that. They want health insurance. I mean, people, but, you know, the Republicans are going to rescind it. They are just going to rescind it. And they do not have a replacement at this point, from what I hear. There's too much disagreement, so they're probably going to just repeal without a plan, which is, like, unreal. Um, but that's going to have to be fought. There's going to be massive cuts in social safety net programs that are on the chop, uh, you know, in the works. Um, and this is not Trump. This is the extensive ultra-right infrastructure that has been planning these things for a while. Yeah, this you is know, their, their chance to finally realize some of that. Exactly. They have a majority in Congress. They have a president who will do and say anything and apparently signs anything that Pence or Putin tell him to sign. <laughs> so, you know, there you have it. Well, listen, I've got a question that, that I've been wanting to ask, and I have said this in other places, but I think you're kind of perfect for it. And that is um, some background. I don't know if you ever watched Bill Maher on HBO, but just before the election, one of his guests was David Frum, who is, of course, a conservative, mm -hmm. you know, former Bush uh, speechwriter mm -hmm. who came out and said, you know what, I don't agree with Hillary Clinton, I don't like Hillary Clinton, but it's actually a patriotic duty to vote for Hillary Clinton. So he, he's, he's not a Trump person. And what mm -hmm. he was trying to tell Bill Maher was, we really need to be focusing on institutions right now. If you're scared about Donald Trump, you know, being an authoritarian and, and uh, you know, just running roughshod over, you know, law and, and civil society, it, those institutions in the country are kind of the bulwark against that. And unfortunately, Bill Maher was kind of so emotional about the election that he didn't, he didn't get what Trump was mm. saying. But I'm thinking you, you know, you've worked in, in the Ford Foundation sure. you've worked in other foundations and, and all your work with social justice groups and such, you really have an insight into the institutions. And I'm kind of, what's your take on how strong do you think those are for withstanding an assault? That is such an excellent question, and it's, it's one of the central questions. Um, I'd like to believe that the rule of law and the constitutional system in this country are strong enough to withstand the kind of assault that's coming, mm -hmm. um, that's pending. Um, I'd like to believe that, you know, but, you know, what we, when you have somebody who's completely ruthless, and who has the press intimidated, 
the mainstream press, not the progressive press, not the underground press. Um, it's kind of scary. Um, but there is, you know, the, the, there, there are lawyers and there will be lawsuits. <laughs> you know, there will be corruption lawsuits. There will be um, uh, attempts to expose the kind of self-dealing and corruption that is coming our way when you put, you know, people who have vested financial interests in charge of the agencies guarded, empowered with, you know, uh, monitoring those interests, when you have biased people uh, running the judicial system, uh, like Sessions, or, you know, proposed, uh, um, nominated to run the judicial system, it's really problematic. Um, I, I think, you know, I heard somebody say at a meeting recently that he thought, um, there was a difference between Germany in 33 and America in 2016, and that is that our constitutional system is much longer duration, has been through a lot, um, and the institutions of democracy can can thrive. Um, I'd like to believe that. But, you know, I have to see some evidence of that over the next six months, yeah. um, and we shouldn't take it for granted. I mean, this is a system that is built on people's will and people's engagement. And it is, the election is a case study in the fact that so many people are alienated from politics. They do not even vote, you know? Yep. Um, and, and that's the disengagement, the disempowering of people, the alienation, the sense that the system's rigged and it's not going to work for me is what we have to turn around. And I really believe We've got the numbers as progressive people. That's why the other side is engaging in voter uh, fraud and systematically disempowering mm. millions of voters. Why? Why do they bother with you know these kinds of efforts, these sophisticated efforts like purging voter lists? And they're, now they're talking about requiring citizenship identity cards to vote. You know, right. most people in my block barely have, you know, their coats on when they go to vote. You know, I mean, like, you know, it's like nobody's, some people have IDs, some people don't. It's just, it's just any effort to make it harder and harder for people to vote. Why isn't voting a holiday? Why isn't it available to people on weekends? Why, why is it so hard right. to vote all over the country? Why is it so hard to register? Why don't you have same-day registration, you know, given everybody moving all the time for jobs and work and life? These are the kinds of questions and reforms that could be made, and that would make voting easier and much more pervasive. And voting is just one piece of participation. It's not the ultimate or the penultimate. You know, I, I really believe that. So well, your question is profound. It's serious. It implicates media. It imp implicates law. It implicates uh, nonprofit organizations. You know, and I, I think there's a lot of soul searching going on, don't you, about about oh, yeah. how to move? <laughs> oh, yeah. I want to thank you so much for joining us here on this uh, program and enlightening us and still being in the fight and also providing your voice. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Take care. On that note, such an excellent question with an excellent response means that's the end of the show. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Michelle Miao Show. Don't forget, John has his show coming up this Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network during the Michelle Miao Show. For everything else, you can head to michellemiao.com.